0: It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 242 for May 15th, 2011, recorded Friday the 13th. Boo, I bet I scared you. Uh-huh. Oh, no, wait. That's Harry the Harry Ape. Never mind. Natty Narwhal. I love that name. Natty Narwhal, also known as Ubuntu Linux 11.04, arrived the same day I bought a Netbook computer. So I've now experienced a new installation and an update. And from my perspective, there is no longer any reason to qualify support for this operating system. It's capable. It's feature-rich. It's well-behaved. Those who depend on Microsoft and Adobe applications will still need Windows, or Wine, for those... But for everything else, there's Linux. So when I suggest that Ubuntu's Natty Narwhal has gone mainstream, what I mean is that a Linux system is unquestionably capable of supporting 100% of most users' computing needs. In other words, email Web browsing, instant messaging, word processing, spreadsheet applications, data management, listening to music, watching streaming or DVD-based video, playing games, plain text editing, limited photo editing, website development, and more. Lots more. You may have noticed some slight equivocation toward the end of my list there. That's because of the best-known powerhouse applications for photo editing, Photoshop, and website development, Dreamweaver. Are still Windows only applications. If you need those applications or any of the rest of the Adobe Creative Suite, such as Illustrator, Audition, Premiere, After Effects, well, then you need a Windows machine or maybe you need Wine. Wine is known recursively as Wine is not an emulator. It lets Windows users run Windows software on other operating systems. Thus far, I have avoided Wine because sometimes it's hard enough to get Windows applications running under Windows, much less on a system that creates a compatibility layer between the application and an operating system, an operating system that was never intended to run the application in the first place. But Linux has come far enough that I'm planning to give Wine A try, I haven't yet, but I will. And now that Ubuntu is using the Unity desktop manager, Natty Narwhal looks a lot like OS 10 on a Mac. In fact, it seems to me that Unity provides an even better user experience than OS 10. You'll see a dock at the left edge of the screen that I've included on the TechBiter Worldwide website. I haven't yet found a way to move that dock anywhere else. When applications encroach on the dock, it slides off the screen and reappears only when the cursor bumps the left edge of the screen. As with Windows 7, you can pin any running application to the dock. Also very much Mac-like, an applications menu stays at the top of the screen, even if the application is running in a smaller window. When it comes to software, though, you know this isn't a Mac or a Windows PC because nearly every application you want to run comes with a price tag of 0 cents. Canonical Ubuntu Software Center provides a way to download, install, manage, update, and remove more than 30,000 applications, or more accurately, packages. Some applications may have dependencies on one or more other components, and the system knows what these are. So, if you select an application that has a dozen dependencies, those dozen additional packages will be downloaded and installed. You don't have to do anything. Based on currently installed applications, the installer may suggest applications that seem appropriate for your needs. The installer suggested seven additional programs for me, a few text editors, a word processor, and the image editor, GIMP. Some applications aren't available via the Ubuntu Software Center, so Canonical also provides the Synaptic package manager. Synaptic includes some applications that don't qualify under Ubuntu's free software policy. You'll find a link to the free software policy from Ubuntu on the TechBiter Worldwide website. It is rather restrictive, and not all applications will fit under that policy, so Ubuntu doesn't make them available directly. It uses the Synaptic Package Manager to do that. There are actually four classifications. Main, that would be the officially supported software. They fully comply with Ubuntu's policy. Restricted, these are applications that are supported but not available under a completely free license. The applications may be available without charge, but there may be usage restrictions. Then there are packages offered under universe. These are community-maintained software. The applications are not officially supported. And finally, Multiverse, software that is not free. These are commercial applications that run under Linux. Again, some may be available without charge, but not all. So the bottom line for Ubuntu Linux 11.04, if you've thought about Ubuntu, now is the time to act. Again, five cats. Wow. Wow. Now, this is a fairly early review based on less than two weeks of experience with the new operating system. But based on what I've seen so far, this looks like the one that could really work for huge numbers of people. If you are an Ubuntu veteran, well, you'd better be prepared for some changes. You'll like them once you figure out what's going on. But initially, it's kind of a shock. For more information, you can visit the Ubuntu website, and you'll find a link to it from the TechBiter worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Just about the time I thought I was safe, another big dump from Adobe, and I'm trying once again desperately to keep up. Keep up might actually be a little optimistic. I'm just trying to avoid being left too far behind as Adobe races toward the future of computing. Adobe has released an unusual mid-cycle release that happened on May 3rd, and by doing that, they've established kind of a new normal. CS 5.5 isn't a free upgrade, as most mid-cycle releases are, and the release offers a host of new features, which mid-cycle releases usually don't. It's also the beginning to a new release strategy for Adobe in that the company is setting up a two-year cycle with mid-cycle releases designed to address changing technologies. Some will undoubtedly characterize this as change for the sake of change or change for the sake of marketing, but look around. Computing devices have changed a lot in just the past couple of years. The iPad and other tablet computing devices have gained wide acceptance. Mobile phones are now the preferred method of using the Internet for a lot of people. The fact that I'm a dinosaur who picked a netbook computer over an iPad and who uses a 10-year-old cell phone with a prepaid plan that ends up costing about $15 a month doesn't mean that I'm blind to these changes. A lot of people use these smaller mobile devices, and sometime, sooner I think, rather than later, that's going to be most people instead of a lot of people. So the companies such as Adobe who make the tools that make the websites and publications and videos need to keep up with that quickly changing world. I'm just now beginning to dig in and assess what's new, but I can safely make the following observations. Many people, including me, tend to think of Photoshop as Adobe's flagship application. That might once have been true, but no longer is. As important as Photoshop is, and it's really a very important application, it wasn't updated much in the CS 5.5 release. But that's okay, nothing really needed updating from CS 5.1. Second, HTML5 is here. All the major browsers support it, XHTML is dead, Dreamweaver supports HTML5 and the latest version of Flash so that developers can provide content for Android, BlackBerry Tablet OS, iOS, in other words Apple, and other platforms. And here are some key terms to keep in mind, jQuery, PhoneGap, WebKit, Flash, and Flex. Third, massive changes this time around for InDesign. The publishing industry is, and has been, and will be in a panic. Everything, everything is changing. People still read, but paper-based products are going away. Electronic publications can be so much richer. An electronic publication can include audio, video, slideshows, and a lot more. InDesign CS 5.5 users can add these new levels of interactivity to page layouts. Next, video doesn't belong just on your television or on your desktop computer screen anymore. Broadcasters, filmmakers, and video professionals all know that they need to be able to provide content on all sorts of devices. Adobe's Mercury Playback Engine, introduced in Adobe Premiere Pro CS5, now supports more hardware to provide faster real-time video and at high resolution. Next, Adobe's Photoshop Touch software development kit enables developers to build tablet applications that interact with Photoshop from Android, BlackBerry, PlayBook, and iOS devices. And if that isn't enough, there's this. One of the most interesting changes included in this mid-cycle release is the Adobe subscription plan for individual applications and suites. That's right, subscription plan. Think of it as renting the application. For the Master Collection, the monthly fee is $129 for an annual subscription, or $195 per month for month-to-month plans. But if you need just Dreamweaver, for example, you can rent it for $19 a month. Photoshop alone, $35 a month, or $49 if you need the extended version. The full subscription pricing plan is on Adobe's website, and you'll find a link to it from the TechBiter Worldwide website. There's also a link to Adobe's subscription FAQ. And if you're currently using Adobe applications, the company has an application that will evaluate the applications you have today and make suggestions about what you might want to have or what you might need in the future. No cat rating yet for CS5.5. I haven't looked at it long enough to really make up my mind. That's coming later. Probably much later. In short circuits, the Pew Research Center, using data from the Nielsen Company, those are the people who have done media ratings for decades, say that Facebook has joined Google as a major driver in boosting traffic at the nation's top five news sites. As for Twitter, well, not so much. The study identifies the top five news sites as Yahoo, CNN, MSNBC, AOL, and the New York Times website, NYTimes.com. Of the top 25 news sites, all but one pick up some traffic from Facebook. The one exception, understandably, is Google News. About 6% of traffic to the New York Times website comes from Facebook. Despite gains by Facebook, Google News is still the leader. Google drives nearly a third of all traffic to the top 25 sites. Twitter continues to be a non-starter in this particular race. According to the Pew Research study, and I quote, "...despite its growth and the amount of attention it receives, the micro-blogging service Twitter appears at this point to play a relatively small role in sharing of links to news sources. Twitter receives a lot of attention." But Pew notes that the service still has a much smaller audience than Facebook or Google. More than 3% of traffic to the Los Angeles Times website came from Twitter, where it actually beat Facebook's 2%. But for other news sites, the best Twitter managed was about 1%. Pew's study classifies users as casual, those who visit sites two or three times a month and stay briefly, to power users, those who return at least 10 times a month and spend an hour on the news site. Course there are many intermediate types of users too. News sites are still trying to figure out how to make a living on the internet. The study suggests that site operators may want to look for ways to convince users to return more frequently and stay longer. That's the only way that an advertising based system will ever work. Some sites, such as the Wall Street Journal and more recently the New York Times, have turned to subscription plans. As of today, nobody has all the right answers. In fact, it's likely that nobody yet even has all the right questions. Microsoft has announced plans to pay $8.5 billion for Skype, and that is the most expensive acquisition in Microsoft's history. Microsoft has expanded into the smartphone market and probably sees the acquisition as furthering its goals there. In announcing the deal, Microsoft said it will include Skype's capabilities in the Xbox, Outlook, and Windows smartphones. Skype currently works on other operating systems, and Microsoft says it will continue to support those platforms. Skype isn't a moneymaker because most users limit themselves to Skype's free calling services, only about 1% of Skype users actually pay for anything. The company was founded in 2003. eBay acquired Skype in 2005 for $2.6 billion. Couldn't make a go of it, though. eBay then sold 70% of its ownership to a group of private investors about a year and a half ago for $2 billion. Skype lost $7 million last year on revenue of $860 million, a plan to launch an initial public stock offering that the company announced last year was later delayed. The investors will make out well on the deal. Three years ago, Microsoft bid $47.5 billion to buy Yahoo, but Yahoo refused. Yahoo's worth has declined to less than $25 billion now. Smart move, Yahoo. Microsoft's Skype business unit will be headed by Tony Bates, who is the current Skype CEO. I've seen some criticism that Microsoft is paying more than it needs to for Skype and not really getting its money's worth. That may be. But someone at Microsoft clearly sees an opportunity here. The acquisition can certainly strengthen Microsoft's position in several key areas that will be increasingly important in coming years. The agreed price is high enough to inhibit attempts by other companies to outbid Microsoft, and it's high enough that unlike that failed Yahoo bid, none of the current Skype owners was willing to hold out. In other words, this was a way to effectively lock the sale. If that was Microsoft's intent deploy certainly worked. When the United States acquired Alaska from Russia in 1867, Secretary of State William Seward was ridiculed for Seward's folly. Seward always felt that his greatest achievement as Secretary of State was the purchase of Alaska, but he said it'll take the people a generation to find it out. Few would consider the acquisition to be a folly today, and that may prove to be the case for Microsoft's purchase of Skype too. (coughs) YouTube has increased its video rental options by 3,000 titles. And this event is probably causing a bit of heartburn at Netflix. YouTube already has the lead in Internet-connected televisions and portable devices. For the past several years, Netflix has been expanding and improving its streaming service, so it looks like a battle may be brewing here. The new YouTube offerings include full-length films from Sony Pictures, Warner Brothers, Universal, and Lionsgate. New releases will cost $4. If it, well, all right. New releases will cost $3.99, if that penny makes a difference, except to those mush-brained people who think that three ninety nine is more like $3 than $4. They'll also be available on the same day that they become available via other on-demand services. Films such as The Green Hornet, Inception, and The King's Speech are available now. Some of these just recently released on DVD. The older movies cost 3 bucks. Well, all they cost $2.99. Last year, YouTube offered films from Sundance Film Festival and until now had only a small library of films that could be rented online. Paramount, 20th Century Fox, and Walt Disney are remaining on the sidelines. They have concerns about piracy thanks for listening to tech biter worldwide the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes i'm bill blinn check out the website www.techbiter.com and if you like send me an email from there thanks bye-bye